touch. We'll talk about this in your next review. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Hello and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is episode 13, the second in our series of interviews from the 2017 NZIA in situ conference. And in this episode, we're talking to LA architect Barbara Bester. Barbara's work is a very exuberant sensory type of architecture. She's a, a fan of pop culture and she's not afraid of um, bringing pop culture references into her work to sort of expand on the territories um, beyond architecture and add a sort of extra sensory vibe to her work. Um, in this interview, she talks about pattern and surface, um, her use of colour, and also why she'd like to design a psychologically informed high school. We're going to hear from Barbara now, but first, um, a big thank you to Simon Wilson from Swell for recording this interview. Okay, Barbara, um, can you tell us a little bit how you came to architecture and where you are today? Um, I came to architecture, I guess, from childhood. I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is a sort of part of Boston, and I think a part of Boston, though, with a disproportionately high number of architects many of whom I babysat for when I was little. And there was something going on where I just got really, really interested in architecture, kind of looking at these different houses. Some of them were the kind of thing that was big that back then when they would have sort of super graphics, you know, like I would say attic and big letters, you know, pointing up the stairs to the attic that had been converted. And I kind of, I became a bit of a design consumer. There was a outlet store for design research that sold Marimekko sheets and things and I would save up my allowance and buy like little yellow Marimekko things and so I kind of I kind of got into different aspects of it but, but at some point I started reading the books when I was I was babysitting and so by the age of 12 I decided to be an architect and then kind of started like in high school doing internships and you know through college I went to Harvard for as an undergrad but I studied in the art department and did a lot of architecture theory and I went to the AA for a year and at the AA Alvin Boyarsky who was then the head of it said if you really want to do buildings in the US you should go to LA after this don't don't stay on the East Coast and I I took his advice and moved out to LA. 12 is a really early age to make a decision that that's the vocation you're going to go into. Um, how big was the how big was the shift in your expectation and what you thought it might be at that age to where you are now or, or after that point? Um, I'm not sure what. Well, I think when I decided I wanted to be an architect so early, it was, it was really that I liked kind of three dimensional, spatial, colorful things, and I, I had I had made models of things before, made boats and things like that. Um, I didn't really know what it meant in terms of a profession. I didn't really have family members who were in the profession. My family's all academics. And, and for a while when I started studying architecture, I, was, I, was, I kind of had an academic bent, but I eventually felt like it was a real prison. I didn't really want to be writing about architecture. I wanted to be building it. And that, that's also part of what got me to go to the West Coast. Like I, I could easily have gone into something that was like a combo PhD program, but I really wanted to um, be making things. And I, and I got into the sort of two-dimensional fine art as well. So I, 
actually when I got to California I wasn't sure exactly at first if I would go to a graduate program for art like CalArts or if I would go to SciArc for architecture but I did eventually realize I really would wanted to be making space. And do you think it's easier to make architecture in a new world city like Los Angeles than it is say on the east coast of America? I, th I think that in, in American culture, the West Coast is a much better place to practice architecture and also be able to do kind of unique projects. I mean, there's, there's I think the only two American Pritzker winners are out of Los Angeles from the 70s and 80s, so that right there is kind of proof of the pudding. But it, it, it's, it, at the time when I first got there, the city was, was um, smaller, less dense, more concerned with issues of sprawl, um, and a good place to do a lot of small projects in a way that could be really open-ended. And so as it's become a bigger city and denser, now there's sort of there's more opportunities to do bigger projects that are that kind of, again, are looking for a new way of doing a bigger project or a new way of making a city. So it's, it's been really exciting to kind of be a part of that culture as it changes. And um, you talked um, in your presentation today um, about uh, everybody should experience strange beauty on a daily oh. basis. And what do you mean by that? Well, I, I came to this notion, this kind of motto that everyone should experience strange beauty every day. I, I came to it out of a, a kind of a couple days sort of mini workshop I was doing, trying to come up with like, well, what is it that we're trying to do here at, in the office? and. And I, I'd always been really interested in the um, sort of the, some of the techniques of modernism that were the kind of earlier, more experimental ones. And, and say the technique of defamiliarization is one that it's also had some resonance again in the art world in the 80s and stuff. But but the idea that that um, I, I think the original concept comes from. Uh, people who are looking at like Russian folk poems and sort of rearranging how they were printed on the page in a kind of Russian modernist moment as a, as, as a sort of art is making strange. That was sort of like the idea, art is making strange. You're taking this traditional folk poem and by even the way you print it or arrange the letters or something, you kind of make it into this new thing that has a different set of meanings or an additional set of meanings, but is still rooted in the culture. And I love that. I think for architecture, we're always kind of taking things that were here, sort of, and looking at them in a different way. And then, and then that conjoined with um, the idea. Uh, I believe it's like so Merleau Ponty, but the, the idea that of kind of the importance of everyday life is where a lot of people really experience meaning. And I feel like that's you know, as architects, we're always trying to rather than looking at trying to create meaning through representation, but like through experience. Um, I feel like everyday life, literally like bathrooms are really important, but a beautiful bathroom changes your, your, your experience of a given restaurant or someone's home or something like that. And that, that, that these kind of, I, I like embrace the um, mundanities of some of our spatial requirements, but I feel like they're, they're really great opportunities and that has served me well really um, in building the practice because you know, you might do some home offices or bathrooms or coffee shop or something and it turns into like an urban space project, you know, sort of by the by the nature of its importance in people's lives or in community lives. And I mean there's great pleasure in, in sort of elevating the everyday, you know, making those small moments just that much more beautiful. Yeah, the the um I think I, I guess 
to me, a, a success in a project, especially one that's sort of a quasi-public project, even if it's, you know, commercial or something like that, is that, that kind of people walk in and feel like there's things going on, some of which they recognize, some of which they are, are maybe kind of extra sensual or something, and that it's it can kind of just give this pause of, of just a kind of reorientation of the body, you know, that it, and that that can work in different ways for different people. Like it's not um, an experience directed at like a group. It's kind of more about like the body or kind of, you know, maybe sometimes it's color or some kind of visceral, visceral um, sensibility. But, but so I think that that's, that's, that's kind of how I can see if something was working or not. Like if people are kind of feeling like, oh, this is special. And then, you know, maybe they want to come back and then it suddenly becomes like mm. a place that people want to be. So you talked, um, you, you talked then about that idea of defamiliarization and meaning and some of those these quite phenomenological and experiential aspects of architecture. And it reminded me of what, so Christopher, the first speaker of the day, spoke about these, these uh, what was the word he used, themes or whatever. But the last one being satire. Mm. And I just wondered if that was something you sort of related to because... Um, one of the many striking things about your presentation was that there was a there's a seriousness about the work, but it's not to be confused with a sort of solemnity mm. about the way in which it's delivered. In fact, there was a lot of laughter, and there was you know, um, yeah, there was a lot of lightness oh, in that sense. Yeah, <laughs> and I just wonder if that idea of satire um, relates. Well, I, I guess I, I I think the idea of satire, the way um, Christopher Hawthorne was talking about it today, is fascinating I kind of agree with him that it's harder to pull off intentionally as an architect like I think the project he was talking about which is a, a former colleague of mine Keith Crumwhitey is like intentionally kind of critiquing say um, the McMansion and the the sort of lack of imagination in terms of how America is sort of expanding in the rural areas or suburban areas but I do think that architecture takes itself awfully seriously and that it loses a lot of the potential audience or even champions of architecture somehow. And along the way, I feel like, you know, maybe more overtly when you see the kind of closed um, language that's sometimes used, and especially in the academy, it becomes, it becomes kind of difficult because it's, it's, it sort of helps reinforce a sense of... Um, specialness and sometimes motivation for architects but it also can really uh sort of detach completely from like what's going on in the common culture and almost be it almost seems maybe um unaware of what's going on in common culture like what is Beyonce doing like that's not something you necessarily see in a post-Lacanian discursive description of something and I and I think that that one of the things about this kind of multimedia age that our, our, our clients, our citizens, our potential audience are living in, they're, they're really seeing all kinds of stuff. They're actually very sophisticated, but they're, but also, um, you know, the, the, the way, the forms of cultural production that you can touch as an architect are actually quite large, like whether it's making videos or, you know, creating images or a kind of experience or something that, you know, where is the, where is the selfie moment? Like literally in, I, I have friends who work in museums now and museums kind of have to have these things that are the thing that you take the picture of in front of to tell your friends that you went to that museum, like the sort of selfie moment. It's like the Natural History Museum in New York has, they've moved the Roosevelt statue out because it was so popular from the night at the museum movies. It's sort of, but now it's like in the middle of a room so everybody can take pictures with it and that increases their audience, you know? And it's, so it's a little, that's maybe an extreme, but I, I do feel like um, I actually like popular culture. I like music, I like art, I like 
kind of some stuff about um, well, certainly film, and, and so I'm always interested in like how we can expand our territory as architects by using some of those other languages and, and, and using them to kind of like fill in, say, some of the atmospheric um, qualities of our architecture. And I don't think that we have to, um, I don't feel like it's a contamination. I feel like it's a kind of extension of um, our tool set. So how do you, you make all these references to pop culture? And I couldn't agree more with that comment about the, the closed language and those things. And I guess the idea of relating to people through experiences is a much more universal language. Someone can come in and have these feelings of all of these various things in the pieces of work we've seen. How do you consume pop culture? And how do you, how do you come to know it and stay familiar with it and stay current with it? Me personally, like, yeah. what are my, what are my, what's my feed? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, there's the sources of, um, you know, blogs and daily. I mean, I read. I I once made a joke. I read the New Yorker, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and New York Magazine, and I live in LA, which is ridiculous. But now you, I also read Hollywood Reporter is weirdly now interested in architecture. So now I look at Hollywood, I, have, I added that to my feed. I look at um, Paper Magazine, which is really like kind of, um, you know, LGBT and nightclub culture. And, and I'm interested in some different music things. Um, but I don't, I don't think what I, I don't think I'm in any kind of, I wouldn't put myself in the rabid consumer of popular culture category at all because I know people who are and that is a whole nother world I think I have like basic literacy in popular culture I figure if I a 50 year old lady you know middle class hardworking architect like if I know all this stuff probably most people know way more than I do and, and so why would it not be you know part of our common parlance um but I, I actually, I look a lot at art too. I mean, I think that that, I think maybe one way to look at it is that some of the contemporary artwork going on now is, you know, there's a lot of work right now looking at the history of racism and different kinds of, whether it's in video art or in like that amazing Kara Walker piece that was the, in the Domino Sugar Factory, the Sphinx. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of I usually, I think artists are usually like a year or two ahead of architects. You know, we may be a couple of years ahead of some other people, but um, there is a lot to be said for for being aware of it. And I, I don't think that um, a lot of people making art. I don't know about the art world. That seems like a whole other ballgame. But a lot of people making art are not, um, say, too hindered by ideas of appropriateness or conservatism the way a lot of architects are. Um, your work uses um, uh, a lot of colour and, and sort of um, uh, pattern and, and so on. Can you talk about that, about that a little bit further? Oh yeah, well I guess I, guess I feel like the, the, the use of say the graphic, like two-dimensional um, surface, like whether it's colour or pattern or sometimes material, is, is something that has been underrated for a while in architecture. I mean I, I think you know, you have the, the sort of Louis Kahn, you know, the brick didn't know what it was till the light hit it type of thing. That was never a big issue, frankly, in Los Angeles because the materiality is largely, you know, stucco or maybe in a high-end thing, glass and steel. Um, but, but it is a great place for kind of microcosms of, say, lots of different Central and Latin American cultural things, which are more like street color, you know, 
the tradition of painting the bottom two feet of a building along a street like a dark blue color to avoid it getting dirty because the mud might wash up in it like you see all these different kinds of um of of kind of approaches to to color and and atmosphere um just by looking around that are that that could be i don't know for me they become really influential um, in, in terms of work and, and to the extent that we actually generate a fair amount of like graphic content well graphic content sounds like it's rated <laughs> X <laughs> not rated a, uh, content of a, of a two dimensional nature out of the office because it becomes really useful like we you know we sometimes we can't afford to cover the thing in like a beautiful tile that we want to so we but we can we, we have these great people who can print it on vinyl for us at a pretty high res printout and it'll last for probably two or three years which is about the lifetime of that space and it's great so so um i think i i guess i discovered a lot more of that kind of um i started to embrace that kind of versatile approach to material when i was doing more retail stuff a while ago like i used to do i did all these um stores for this women's surf line called Roxy and and there the idea was that we were going to change them out for summer to winter because they were sort of surf ski and you'd have this sort of so we had these different parts of it that would literally change you know twice a year with these different large images and that was I was like oh this actually kind of works and it wasn't that expensive and then I then I became friends with this amazing sign painter in LA who now I have doing all kinds of work often like things that are you know we'll 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 create a whole mullion window that's really just a like two kinds of highlight paint with kind of some shadow details and I would say to 99% of the people that see it including architects they think it's this really elaborate mullioned project and it's actually just this painted glass that will last you know five years or something like that and so I think it's just it's a kind of it's another one of these it's another tool for the toolkit but it also is fun and it's also I think a lot of color is you know I'm sure any you can always have too much of a good thing but but it it seems to um, make people happy (laughs) um I've seen a lot of photographs of models um, oh, yeah. in the exploration of your work. Um, and I, I'd be keen to hear what role they play in the design navigation and how you resolve those things. I'd be keen to hear like the size of your studio or office or however you refer to it and um, how you unlock the collaboration in that group of people to deliver on this really broad skill set that ranges from 2D graphic design and landscape and architecture and urban design, colorism, this really, really broad thing. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I, I feel very lucky. I've, I've, um, I have kind of built up this office over time, which has, which people basically don't really leave too much if, if you know, once they start and everybody, we all get along and it's, you know, the, the, and, and I really try to encourage people to kind of dig deep into the things that they most like. So I have one of my employees is someone who is a grad student of mine. Actually, several of my students were grad students of mine. I mean, several employees, I started, some of them were fellow faculty and some of them were fellow students. Schools are a great place to find really talented people. Um, but, but you know, the, someone who was, a, I think, a geography student and then became an architecture person and had this kind of love for graphics. So he ends up, this guy, Henry Chung, he ends up doing a lot of work. He loves doing graphics. And I'm always trying to, and my, I'm like, don't go be a graphic designer. Just, you know, be an architect, but, you, you know, we will give you plenty of that to do. And so he sort of has a great love of that kind of work. Um, 
other people are really into kind of uh, like tectonics and detail and, and you know they they may sort of work on that in particular um, but the, I think the big thing is really trying to keep keep people for as long as they want to be there but for as long as you can because then you kind of and, and I think the only way to do that is by having an environment where you can try different stuff and people can kind of you know rise through the ranks and get more responsibility and more money like all that stuff it just sort of becomes a bit more like I, I feel like I'm almost like Google I want to keep them I don't want like Facebook to take them I want to keep the people who are really great and and kind of make them happy and let them do stuff that they are interested in so sometimes we'll do projects because someone really wants to like we got we did start a landscape architecture studio and so that person really wants to be going after more public commissions and less sort of small parks and stuff which is actually a perfect fit for us because you know doing like pavilions in a park and the, it allows a bigger urban kind of um environment so we started going after those kind of projects but we also have so many um, residential and housing projects that have a landscape component so we sort of have a built-in like you know way of supporting that person's projects while they're looking at the other things uh, but let's see I was trying to think of what else you asked me oh models yeah so I guess I guess in terms of I guess because I came of age I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that my thesis drawings were, you know, took me maybe a month and a half to draw an ink on Mylar with color Pantone, and I loved, like, the craft of drawing, and I, I kept doing it myself for a while, even though increasingly no one in my office was doing it, and now, like, they're like, ha, nobody, I don't even have a mail line anymore, I used to have my mail line just sort of for bragging rights, but, but, um, but rather than rely on, I mean, we, we do a lot of work in Rhino if we need to when we're doing massing and stuff, but I have always been a bit suspicious of the, the kind of the viewpoint given in the, the, the viewpoints that you might capture from a digital model. Like you, it's pretty easy to capture the sexy viewpoint and sort of ignore all the not so great ones. And I feel like it's harder to do that in a physical model. So a lot of times, especially because we'll do some intricate projects, I really like to get a physical massing model going with context um, to kind of to kind of work on and, and change. And they're often like study models. We don't really do a lot of presentation models, but they're kind of they're kind of a useful tool. They actually don't take that much time to make. And nowadays, sometimes we'll just make them out of foam, and they're really easy to make. Um, but so we kind of have a lot of those hanging around, especially when when we get to do single family houses, which are are kind of a more sculptural endeavor, you know, than a lot of other projects, and are also, um, you know, are seen in different ways because you can look at them from above, you can look at them from below. So I really always try to make pretty detailed, like quarter inch even models of of houses before we start building them. So we're just kind of really working on it. Um, but then, but then all the production work is done, you know, in AutoCAD, and we do a lot of Rhino and stuff. We kind of farm out renderings if we can, because I feel like that's one of those things that clients want, but they're not. We're like, we're gonna build the building. You don't really need a rendering for it. If you want, you can pay extra and get a rendering, but let's just build it because you know, whatever. But that, but that, you know, sometimes that works. 
Well, fellow dinosaurs, same <laughs> same <laughs> techniques. You'll get the same agreement about like the privilege of the physical mm. as opposed to the digital. I, I really get that. Well, this, even even I mean, didn't you? I found when I was in school too. Like I, I went when I went to the AA, everybody was really into like kind of powerful one point perspectives because it was sort of the era of Park de Villette and like the Bernard Chumi drawings mm-hmm. and stuff. And and those are great because they're very sexy drawings too. But a they're one point perspectives, so they're not even really, you know, showing that much. But B, they are so misleading and they make you always want to do a whole bunch of stuff in a row so that it looks really cool in perspective. And so you have like all these buildings with, you know, kind of flying buttresses for no reason other than they they look really good in a one point perspective, but they might just be horrible, you know, from a massing point of view. So yeah, so I kind of, I think because of that, I've I've always had a little like, yeah, well, let's see. Let's see what it looks like in a model. So how much has your work influenced them by, like, because there's a great example that you put this thing into the drawing because it reacts so well in the type of drawing and it therefore influences your design decision making. Is that is that the case with the work you still do and in, in the way it's influenced by the means of production and means of investigation? Or have you sort well, of somewhat trans, transcended that a little more? I think, well, I think the point, our way of working is supposed to sort of subvert that and actually kind of get it to be a little more... You know, the modeling is often more about like context, so like massing in a context, and like what will you see, and how does it how's it kind of reacting in a bigger picture. Um, I think that that's the training that we get as architects, and the point of spending that really long time in school is that you do kind of train. I mean, you I'm sure we all, we see what things are going to be when they're done. We don't really need a whole lot of the representations are not for us usually. They're usually for you know. I mean, sometimes they are for like composition, but they're kind of more for civilians you know so I don't I don't that's why I, I try to I'd rather never privilege them and privilege like actually just building stuff so I don't really mind building things that are really tiny because even those can be you know as powerful I mean witness that Wally lecture that we just saw which had like some really tiny projects but they're so amazing um that yeah I, I guess I guess it's um I guess the one thing I I don't actually love things that are really really big. <laughs> I'm not a fan of mega structures, and I think massive models are a good way to understand like why things are can be really bad when they're huge. You know, it's just not. I mean, it's, it's rarely, rarely the way to go. I think I kind of feel like it's it, so maybe the stuff I'm interested in is these techniques are useful for propagandizing against like you know. When it, like just the sexy interior perspective of the mega mall that's just horrible, like a horrible box, which is in LA, most things are like a horrible box with like either something stuck on the inside or stuck on the outside. And you know, that's what we're trying to not do, so. Is there a type of work you haven't done that you want to do? I would love to do a school. I really want to do a high school because I feel like high schools are such a great locus of anxiety and you know, all kinds of horrible experiences for people who are actually in high school and that it would be so nice to have a nice high school that was sort of <laughs> that had space for the, the hard parts and space for communal activity and you know, I I I've I've, I've um always been interested in Mike Kelly's work, the artist, and uh, who passed away, but he, he did this amazing model that was kind of like his it was almost like his psychological traumatic version of the high school literally the high school they actually went to like the styrofoam model and and ever since i saw that i've been like i would like to do you know a let's say psychologically informed and and kind of helpful 
high school because wouldn't that be great? And there's so many, you know, things that are always going on, you know, that those are kids that age are often the bellwether of things to come and they are probably like feeling the brunt of media saturation and telephones. And I just think it'd be a very interesting population to work for. So Barbara, we do have just one more question for okay. you. Um, uh, the conference is about inspiration, provocation, and reports on experience from leading international athletes such as yourself. So if you were to leave New Zealand with one message to provoke uh, local practice, what would it be? Oh my gosh. <sighs> um, well, I guess, I guess I've only been tooling around Auckland the last couple of days, but I've seen so many good things. It seems like there's there's been a tendency to open up the waterfront more to people, and that you know even just where we're sitting, we see a kind of great you know parade of people walking by. I feel like the like continuing to expand that 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 path in a way as much as possible would be wonderful. Because I went out to Waikiki, which was a great beautiful island, but then so separate, you know. And it seems like there's probably Waikiki right here, you know, somewhere. And that it's just how do you how do you make it so you can ride your bike there, like you know, you kind of extend this extend this promenade. I don't know if that's really that's more of urban planning. Like you should do this, but obviously they're already they're, everyone's already doing that. Um, I feel it, it. It seems like a place. It seems very. I feel very. Uh, seems like Auckland is very relatable. It doesn't seem that different in a way from some of the stuff that we have going on in Los Angeles. The experiments we've been having lately with kind of you know, mixed scale housing, I think are, are probably would work here in the way that they can work, they, they work for us. You know, I, I see like, you know, I went down Ponsonby Street in Franklin and it's a lot of these smaller houses, which is also what I'm used to in Los Angeles. And, and that kind of, um, the thing that, that helped us kind of mess around with new types was that they changed some of the rules about how you could, um, bring together and then resubdivide lots and make smaller lots. And, and one thing that I was always inspired by was Tokyo, which has like such crazy cool buildings on tiny little lots. And that kind of density seems like it might be the kind of thing that I, I think it will work for us in LA as a way of, you know, we still get individualistic things next to each other that are really different, but it also allows more density. And so I encourage people to try and get the planning people to mess around with those those um, lot lines a little bit and see what happens. Okay, well, Barbara, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for making the trip oh, out here you. to in situ and thanks for sharing your work with us. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks. It's been a great pleasure. So wasn't that a great chat? She was awesome. She was a fantastic person to talk to. The thing I like is that she doesn't kind of moan about constraints or even see them as a great impediment, but works really cleverly within almost impossible restrictions in mm. a lot of cases, whether mm. they be budgetary or mm. city imposed or whatever, it's like no problem. Mm. Mm. I'll be inventive and clever and funny and great and yeah. pop cultural and amongst all that. Yeah. yeah. And her, her practice, the way she runs her practice, and I think she talks about finding ways to support the, the employees' um, interests. So, so are you good at landscape, well let's do some landscape. And we'd go off and charge off and do that. So, yeah, quite relaxed about the process of architecture and the and the practice of it. So I thought it was 
quite good. Yeah, it was quite refreshing to you know find in, in the serious world of architecture and building making a, a sort of sense of fun and, mm. um, as you say, a kind of relaxed approach. To yeah, but it really reminds me of that, there's that quite well-known talk by John Cleese where he talks about people not being able to distinguish or unthread seriousness and solemnity. Because yeah. Barbara's work is serious oh, work. Yeah but it's not solemn, mm. and it's certainly not mm. frivolous, right? But it's, like you said, it's really deft, like, mm. like yeah, budgetary constraints, so she mm. works with surface, just a surface mm. finish, in a way that, really hard for a practitioner like me to imagine, but it's super bold and effective, mm. and it's really cheap. Mm. Yeah, inspiring. Yeah. Uh, I guess the other interesting part was her approach to drawing and, and the sort of suspicion she has of virtual models and the way she uses physical mm. models to test things and um, I guess she comes from more analogue um, time um, as opposed to people you've, in this room. You've got here in your show notes, Arch admits to being a dinosaur. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think you admitted that Tash was too. I, was in, I was may have dragged time. her down with me. But um, you know, it was a proud thing, right? And I was talking yeah. about that, the craft of mm. drawing, which I found really interesting, and the models and those sorts of things, which we don't see anywhere near enough of. And the way she talked about architects being trained to see how things would be, not necessarily how they are in the in models. You, you know, you, you're trained to understand what it's going to be like in the built form, and the really suppression of that representation method, which I found mm. quite interesting as well. And on that last question about the kind of work she wanted to do, you were really interested in that answer, Tash. Well, I think it sort of speaks to to her comments about um, creating sensory architecture. The idea that she could uh, create a high school that perhaps responded to some of the issues that I think um, teenagers face on a day-to-day basis and how could you take that model and sort of yeah uh, explore it in a different way from a different perspective I think that's quite clever and on that note we'll wrap up um, thanks again to the NZIA for organising those interviews that was Barbara Bester our next couple of episodes are going to go to different shores we've had uh, two Americans so far and um, episodes 14 and 15 will take us to different places with the next couple of speakers so that's it from the 76 Small Rooms team Goodbye. thanks for listening bye bye bye